When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 43, and we are recording on August 23rd. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hello. What, what? How's it going? It's going. My neighbor's dog upstairs has been howling for two hours, so if y'all hear it, I apologize. We didn't have any other time to record today, so mysterious upstairs neighbor dog is a guest I guess I I can't hear it so I think we're gonna be okay okay good we'll just assume Um, that the dog is agreeing with literally everything I say how about that and yeah and like my existence in general right it's just like really vocally in support of that (laughs) Um, (laughs) I have no good segue here it's fine speaking of being vocally in support of something come to book right live (laughs) there you go that was very smoothly done thank you this is your (laughs) This is your reminder that you should join us for Book Riot Live, which is our two-day convention celebrating books and the reading life. It's like the site only in person, which is delightful. Uh, It's November 12th and 13th in New York City, and you can find out more at bookriotlive.com. And if you use the code JAZZHANDS when you're checking out, you will get $20 off your weekend pass or $10 off your day pass. And the authors are amazing, and we're going to start announcing panels very, very soon. So you're going to want to be on that list and you should also register before september 1st register by august 31st because then you get vip perks which you're gonna like so okay that's my pitch for book riot live all right so if you are new to the show um like i said this is a show for personalized reading recommendations so you send us your requests for book recs your questions they can be for yourself for your book club for a friend or a gift that you want to give someone doesn't matter you can email them to us Get booked at bookriot.com, or you can drop them into the form at the bottom of the show notes on the site, um, the bottom of every episode. Or you can send them to us on Twitter. I'm at I'm Amanda Nelson, and Jen is at Jen IRL, Jen with two Ns. And if your question is time sensitive, please note that in the subject line of the email or in the first line of your um, request if you're putting it in the form. And we will try our very best to get to all of them on time. All right, so shall we? Jump in. Let's do it. Oh, did you want to mention we're going to start emailing some responses? Oh, yes, yes. Um, we have started to get, we've been doing this, I mean, this is episode 43, so we're almost at a year, which means that we we're starting to get some repeat questions. Um, people who maybe are new to the show and haven't, you know, heard every single episode that we've done. And so they're asking some of the questions that we've already answered. And so instead of taking up a spot on the show to kind of recommend the same books again, we're going to start emailing repeat questioners, um, our answers with links to the uh, episode where they can listen to um, the, you know, the answer to their question. Um, so if you don't get an answer from us on the show, we do still want to answer everybody. So we, we might, we might email you back, which is why the form now includes a, a place to put your email. Um, so yeah, you don't have to go back and, and read all the show notes of every episode. Um, <laughs> see if we've already answered your question. Uh, if, if we have, we will let you know with, with an answer. Okay. All right. First question is from Kelly. 
I'm a college composition instructor, and in the fall, I plan to have my students write memoirs about places that are important to them. I always ask my students to read examples of the genres before they write. I would really love some recommendations of memoirs about place or strongly connected to place in some way. I teach a diverse group of students, so I would especially like recommendations of memoirs that represent diversity in cultures, races, nationalities, (laughs) class, and gender. Good question. Yeah. All right, before we get to the answer, we're going to do our first sponsor, which is Furious Rush by S.C. Stevens. This is a new adult, the first book in a new adult series from the best-selling author of the Thoughtless novels. I like this because this is about, it's about motorcycles, and the pitch that the publisher sent me was, it's the Fast and the Furious meets Romeo and Juliet on bikes. Oh my God, what? (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Um, So... It's about racing, motorcycle racing. The main character's name is Mackenzie. She's the daughter of, like, a motorcycle racing legend. But she's really talented in her own right and is kind of determined to show this very male-dominated sport that she is, uh, you know, that she's worthy, that she wants to, like, prove herself or whatever. Um, And so the hero, I guess, of this novel, his name is Hayden, and he comes from the world of illegal street racing and is the rival team's newest writer and of course they get under each other's skin and um he doesn't like her because he thinks she's like a spoiled princess who was kind of handed her career she doesn't like him because he's like a street rat in a very aladdin kind of way Um, and is you know like just obnoxious and rude to her but of course they have some tension and electricity um between each other The, the rule the only rule about um, the only rule that exists between these two like super competitive teams is that they can't have any contact off the track. But then Mackenzie starts to have financial problems that she has to turn to Hayden for help. And so they start meeting like in the dead of night, tension simmer. And I'm sure you can imagine what happens, but you got to read to find out. Um, so it's a strong female heroine in a male dominated sport. This is not a book about a damsel in distress. She's an athlete. She has really strong female, uh, strong family ties, which is great. Um, I haven't read a lot of new adult or or anything like that that has um, like a really powerful female athlete figure. So I think that's really cool. So check it out. Furious Rush by SC Stevens. And thanks for sponsoring the show. All right. I'll just keep going because I'm talking. So memoir is about place. My first pick for you, I selected because it's about both a literal and a figurative place. So I thought it would be an interesting read for this kind of exercise. And it's Negroland by Margot Jefferson. Um, and this is a memoir slash history cultural criticism book. It's a lot of things rolled into one. Um, And so the memoir part of it is that Margot Jefferson was born into an upper class black family in the 50s in Chicago. Her father was the head of pediatrics at Provident, which was at the time the nation's oldest black hospital. Her mom was a socialite. And so they were well to do. And she spent, Margot grew up in that kind of privileged, um, not bubble, but uh, the very rare air of being a wealthy black family in the 50s in uh, the U.S. And so it's about that and how her her experience of growing up and her interactions with white people and her experience with racism was different or how it was the same as lower class families um, who also lived in Chicago. So there's a lot about Chicago. Like this is very, the memoir is very rooted in her experience in like Hyde Park and Park Manor and these neighborhoods that her family moved into that were predominantly white neighborhoods and how her neighbors reacted to that and um, how her attending schools with mostly white children shaped her experiences. Um, And so it is, you know, about the place of Chicago, but it's also about this figurative place that she calls, that Margaret Jefferson calls Negro land, which is um, like this 
social construct of respect, like quote unquote, respectable, um, black families who have a lot of money, who put a lot of emphasis on like manners and achievement, um, and being not super dark skinned and having really well behaved hair, um, and not trying to necessarily fit in with white upper class people because they don't trust them for obvious reasons, but like creating their own, uh, realm of achievement, um, as kind of not out of spite, but as kind of like a look at what we can, we can do this too. And we don't need you kind of a thing. So there's a lot of, um, literal place stuff and figurative place stuff going on in this memoir. And I just love it. And it's so eye opening and interesting. So that's Negro land by Margot Jefferson. My first pick for you is take this man by Brando Skyhorse, which is, um, I, it, it, it's okay. I'll just tell you what it is. <laughs> it's, okay. Brandis Skyhorse is a, a, a writer who's also written fiction, um, short stories and novels. Um, but he had a really unusual childhood situation. His mother is kind of a compulsive liar. And for his whole life, he was told that his father was a man named Paul Skyhorse Johnson, and which would then make him Native American. And it turns out that that man was not his father, um, that he is not Native American at all. And on top of this, like in addition to telling him that his father was somebody else, she also had this rotating cast of husbands and boyfriends who came in and out of Brando's life um, when he was young. And so, as you might expect, he has some real complicated issues with fatherhood and understanding like who he is, his own personal identity. Um, and it wasn't until he was in his thirties that he started untangling this, you know, lifelong deception of his mother's. And the memoir is about him trying to understand like what she told him, why she would tell him these things. And also he, you know, he, so he grew up with his mother and her mother. So his grandmother in Echo Park in LA. So Los Angeles is definitely a major character in this book. Um, you get such a clear view of what it was like to grow up there and what his neighborhood is like and what their neighbors are like. And it's very deeply rooted in that, you know, LA neighborhood feel. Um, and, but it's just a really fascinating story. Um, he, I think, I thought when I was reading it that he tries very hard to be fair to his mother while also being like real clear on what it was that she was doing to him and, and to their family. Um, it's a really interesting, crazy story. Um, and his grandmother is a real force in the book as well. Um, she's a great character to read about. And I just thought the whole thing was good from start to finish. It's a really unusual kind of memoir. It's not, you know, a story that I have ever, ever remember reading about before. Um, and he's a really good storyteller. He's a great writer. Uh, so not only about place, but also about family. So I feel like this will be a great example for your students. Um, and it's just such a wild story, like to find out that you are not the person that you thought mm -hmm. you were like, that's intense. So that is Take This Man by Brando Skyhorse. Okay, so my second pick for you is Reading Lolita in Tehran by Azar Nafisi, who I think we've mentioned on the show before, um, her other book, uh, The Republic of the Imagination. And Reading Lolita in Tehran is her memoir, which also has some historical elements. So it's about the uh, revolution in Iran, uh, uh, excuse me, in Iran, which is um, where she watched 
as a professor of English and Persian literature, she experienced this revolution, like watching the, the city that she loved go from this really progressive intellectual city to really restrictive and religiously repressive. Um, she refuses to cover her hair uh, after the revolution, and so she can't teach anymore. So Nafisi takes seven of her brightest female students and brings them to her house to discuss and study literature. So there's a lot of stuff going on in this memoir. There's her memories of Tehran, which is very much, you know, a, um, a memoir of place. You can tell that she really loves the city and is kind of super, you know, conflicted about what she sees happening to it throughout the revolution and after. Um, and then the, uh, the, another part of it is her sessions in her, um, her living room with her students, which are so fascinating to me because she, like they take works, uh, they're doing Western literature. So they read like Austin and the great Gatsby and, um, Lolita obviously. And they take, like, they take the great Gatsby and they put it on trial after the revolution in the wake of this new Islamic state to determine whether or not the great Gatsby is actually like a work of Western intellectual poison or if it's if it's like worthy of being taught in an islamic society and they like put it on trial and discuss whether or not it's art and what art is and it's just a really interesting um and fascinating section and then uh, like outside of these memoirish um areas of the book nafisi herself uh, gives you a lot of like literary analysis of these works that they're reading which i think is interesting for an english class to read so um the parts that are like memoir of place are very much about war and what happens when a, a society goes from being open-minded to being totally closed-minded and what happens to the people who live there and what happens to people who love a place and have to like watch it kind of crumble into something they don't recognize. So there's a lot going on in this book and um, it's actually also like a really great book club pick bonus if any of you out there are looking for a pick for your book club um if your book club reads classics ever i think this is a good selection for that so yeah so that's reading lolita in tehran by azarna pp all right my second pick i picked because it is such a place specific memoir it's called fire season field notes from a wilderness outlook by philip connors and uh philip connors was an editor at the wall street journal and um, he decided to leave and to instead become a fire lookout, which is when you spend half the year in a like tower that is, you know, 10,000 feet above sea level in New Mexico. Um, you're the only one there. You live in this like tiny little room in the top of a tower. And your job is to stare at the forest uh, and try to make sure that there's no fires. Um, and if you see smoke, you do an alarm, but there's nobody else around. You're just by yourself. You're literally in a tower all by yourself for six months, <laughs> mm. <laughs> except for like occasional visitors, which I think actually kind of sounds amazing. The introvert in me is like, yes. Um, but obviously that's also super isolating and a lot of time for reflection. And so Connors, uh, in the course of writing this book about being a fire lookout, is talking about the landscape. He's talking about what he's reading. He's talking about what in his past led him to wanting to seek out this kind of extreme isolation. I mean, he's married. So what is it like to be married when you're also a fire lookout? Um, the people who come through uh, to, you know, on their hikes through the woods that he's keeping an eye out for. Um, he's got his dog Alice with him, which is also, I, I love a good dog in a memoir. <laughs> so that's really good. Um, and he's talking a lot about, I actually hadn't realized that Edward Abbey was a fire lookout in like that same area of New Mexico. Um, 
And so he's talking about, you know, writers that inspired him and books that inspired him. And if you wanted to read a lot more about forests, this is a great start. Um, It's a good open door into that world. Uh, And also just a really interesting meditation on like what it's like to spend a huge amount of time alone in nature, uh, which I'm always a fan of. So that is The Fire Season, or excuse me, Fire Season by Philip Connors. All right. Question two. This is from Steph. Um, She says, I'm looking for anything you can throw at me about Native American history. I can't help but be reminded of that scene in Adam's Family Values where Wednesday threatens to scalp that little blonde girl. And as I chuckle, I wonder where the real version of that story is. I'm Native American but grew up away from my tribe's reservation, so I'm looking to connect spiritually with them somehow while still plotting away at my distant graduate school. Also, I noticed the recent genre kryptonite post about narrative nonfiction, which piqued my interest since I primarily read fiction. So any recs you can make within the genre would be great. Okay, so we split this into two parts. I'm going to take the recommendations for Native American history, and Jen is going to take the ones for narrative nonfiction. Um, So I guess I'll just go ahead and do both of mine, since they're, like, by topic. Go for it. Um, Okay. So my first pick for you for Native American history, you didn't mention, like, what tribe you were from, so I just picked my two favorites, so I hope that's okay. Um, So the first one is Code Talker, the first and only memoir by one of the original Navajo Code Talkers of World War II. It's by Chester Nez. And um, if you're unfamiliar with this... uh, like period of history in World War II, uh, every code that we were using in the Pacific theater to send, uh, you know, information um, back and forth between the troops was broken by the Japanese. And so the, the Marines um, finally decided to use Navajos and based a code on their language, which was not written down at the time. And it wasn't, the Japanese never cracked it, which made it like the first, I think still up to this day, uncracked uh, military code. Um, and so I think it was 30, 29 or 30, something like that. Um, Navajo Marines were recruited into this very secret kind of mission to create this code and then function as code transmitters and, and um, receivers on the front lines uh, in the Pacific theater. Um, and so Chester Nez was one of those Marines. And this memoir follows him from his childhood growing up on the Navajo reservation um, as a like shepherd, um, all the way through going off to an English-only boarding school um, where he learned to speak English as a kid, and then what brought him into the Marines, uh, what, what made him decide to join um, during the war. Um, and then his experience through fighting in the Pacific theater, how he survived, how he like lost friends and all of that. And then what his life was like when he came back. Um, there were over 400 Navajos who served in the like military as a whole during World War II, but only a handful of those were code talkers. And after they got back from the war, their mission wasn't declassified until the late sixties. So they were never, they weren't allowed to talk about how they, essentially like won the Pacific theater for the U S um, which is really kind of heartbreaking because Chester knows, you know, his experience, of course, growing up as a Navajo in the early 20th century and then going off to war and then coming back includes like so much racism and like horrible treatment at the hands of individuals and the government. Um, but he can't tell them, like he can't, he can't say, except I like saved you ever. He can't ever say that after he comes home because, you know, it was classified. So there's a lot of like feelings about this. And this is the only, there are a lot of books out, out there about the code talkers of World War II, but this is the only one written by an actual code talker, which I think puts it, you know, way above the rest. So that's Code Talker by Chester Nez. 
Oh, yeah, still my turn. Okay, so the other one that I wanted to recommend to you is kind of like a classic of Native American history. It's Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by Dee Brown. And this is um, kind of a, a, a Native American history of the American West as a whole, so it doesn't focus on just, excuse me, on one tribe. Um, and it doesn't actually just focus on the tribes that lived in the Midwest or the West um, or the Southwest because it also covers tribes that were forced out of the eastern part of the United States um, under Andrew Jackson and later presidents and, you know, like the Cherokees on the Trail, Tears and all that. Um, so it covers a lot of the history of a lot of tribes throughout the seven, uh, when does it start? I think the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and this is just heartbreaking. Like there's no way to tell the story of the United States government and military treatment of the Native Americans during this time period in a way that isn't heartbreaking because there was nothing that we did that was good or correct or moral or right in any way. Um, there are individuals, which I think is interesting that Dee Brown does um, identify some individual members of the military who recognized that the, the way that they were being ordered to treat these people was awful, but they, they never really like fight it. They just kind of note their displeasure and then continue to follow orders, which is awful. Um, but the thing that I appreciate about this history is that even though it's not written by a Native American, he manages to still, like, it's not told through the point of view of, of, of whiteness, if that makes sense. Like, he, he's telling the story of um, the, the people of these tribes and the, like, their chiefs and the people who ran their tribes and who fought for them and spoke for them to the white people who were invading. Um, it's very sympathetic as you really wouldn't have any choice to be, I think if you were writing this kind of history, but it's a classic, it's been out for like, I, I think 30 or 40 years. It's on its uh, 30th anniversary. Yeah. So 30 years. Um, it's sort of like millions of copies and it's, I, I like, I really love it. I've, I've both read it and listened to it on audio and they're both great. So either one is fine. Oh, that's Bury My Heart, It Wounded Me. Sorry, by Dee Brown. Okay, let's see. So narrative nonfiction for people who like fiction. Uh, my first suggestion for you is called Beating Back the Devil by Marin McKenna, which is a book about diseases, but in a really interesting way. <laughs> <clears throat> the CDC has like a disease spy corps, basically. Um, the epidemiologists was the epidemic intelligence services. And what they do is they are like uh, intelligence operatives and they go around the world and they track potential epidemics or outbreaks of disease in different countries. And they work to figure out why it's happening and how to stop it. And what's so fun about this book is that um, McKenna interviews a bunch of people who do this job. Um, and she and they all came. So it was the first class of disease detectives, as they're called, to come to the CDC after September 11th, which is like a very, you know, it's a moment in our history um, that changed a lot of things about how we work with other nations and how we see ourselves in the international scope. Um, and so she is following all of these people who have come from very different backgrounds um, and different cultures, uh, but all, you know, United States, uh, they all live in the United States and they're all training to become one of these epidemiologists and which is a super high risk job. Like you could get sick and die very easily. You often don't have the resources that you need to like help make 
you know, the disease step. Um, you're working on really intense time deadlines. It's really high pressure. Um, some of them have families. Some of them are young. Some of them are at the end of their careers. It's a really fascinating group of people. And she follows them from their training to their jobs around the world. Uh, so it's got a lot of characters, quote unquote, um, which makes it feel more like reading a story. Um, and she does a really good job of putting together a bigger narrative out of the story of these people's lives. And I just think it's fascinating. Like, this is a kind of science that you don't get to hear that much about, I don't think. Um, like, we all know about, like, zombie outbreaks, and the CDC is always, like, you know, mentioned at some point, usually, in those stories. Um, but, like, who would be the people who would get sent to the zombie outbreak? Like, these are the people, <laughs> uh, is how I like to think about it. So um, I think this is a really fascinating, really interesting book that is also a really fun read. Uh, fun, quote-unquote. Uh, so that is Beating Back the Devil by Marin McKenna. And then my second pick for you is a memoir. Um, it's called My Grandfather Would Have Shot Me. By It's by Jennifer Teagan, Nicola Salmer. And this story is really intense. This is a woman who uh, has, was adopted and grew up uh, in Germany, just, you know, like a normal adopted kid. Um, her parents were white and German, and she uh, was black. Um, but she just, you know, kind of didn't know anything about her. She knew her mother, but she didn't know anything about her mother's history. And when she was in her late 30s, she discovered that her grandfather was a mongert who is the horrible Nazi commandant who is like portrayed in Schindler's List. Um, he was in charge of the Plazao concentration camp um, and he was responsible for the deaths of thousands and thousands of people. Um, and she had no idea. And uh, so she obviously kind of had a breakdown um, and was trying to understand what this meant for her, what she understood about her mother, what she suddenly didn't understand about her mother. Um, and she had Jewish friends and had spent some time in Israel and she had kids of her own. And it was really hard for her to come to terms with discovering this horrible thing about her family's history. Uh, so it's a really intense story. Um, and one of the things that I think is really interesting about this book is that there are alternating chapters with Nicola Selmer, who wrote the book with Jennifer Teague, um, who, and Selmer is a journalist. And so she really works hard to situate Jennifer's personal story in the context of like, what it is like to be in this new generation of German citizens who may or may not have, you know, family ties with Nazis or with, you know, the the people who were imprisoned and killed by the Nazis, um, what, how you deal with that family history, how you, how people do or do not talk about it. And there's a lot of not talking obviously, um, involved. And so it's a really kind of big story that's anchored by this one woman's incredibly terrifying experience of discovering her family history. And I think it was really well done. Uh, Jennifer's chapters are very personal, obviously, and Nicola lends her own voice to it in an interesting way. So that is My Grandfather Would Have Shot Me by Jennifer Teague and Nicola Selmer. Woohoo. Woohoo. Oh, right. I mean, that does, that should not get a woohoo, actually. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no. I apologize then. Anyway, okay, question three, moving right along, uh, is from Tara. I need books that can be started and finished in one day. I would consider that to be around 100 pages, give or take, but no more than 150. I enjoy literary fiction, YA, and nonfiction. I'm open to classics and new releases. No sci-fi fantasy, please. Uh, and this is for the Summer Book Bingo 2016, which is a reading challenge sponsored by the Seattle Arts and Lectures and the Seattle Public Library. 
Uh, okay, Amanda, why don't you talk for a minute? Okay, um, my first pick for you is Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Maria Rilke, and this is less than 100 pages. It's like 90 pages, I think my copy is. Um, and it is a series of letters to a young poet, obviously. Um, so a young student had sent Rainer Maria Rilke, who himself you know, is a famous poet, um, a couple of verses and a few letters asking for his feedback. And in response to those letters, Rilke writes these responses that have been put together into a, a little book of 90 pages. There are some editions that are longer that I think include the original letters from the, the student whose name I can't recall. Um, but you know, those are longer and they're not as good. So you know, whatever. Um, so there are so much packed into these. Like he's not just, Rilke's not just saying your verses are good or bad and here's why. He's like ruminating on the nature of art and what it means to be an artist and what it means to be a creator. There's a lot in these uh, letters about the power of solitude and what people need, like what you need to sacrifice and not sacrifice in order to really get into like the golden beauty within yourself. Um, it gets a little highfalutin, which I don't know if that's a, like a Southernism that other people might not get, but it's like very, it can get a little flowery. Um, so if that's not a thing that you enjoy or a style of writing that you enjoy, then you can maybe skip it. But I love it so much. It's so beautiful. And his thoughts about, um, I don't know, I keep like harping on how, he, how much he talks about solitude, but that really like resonates with me for some reason. I don't know. Um, and he is trying to impart to this kid who's writing him, um, you know, with these like longings and dark night of the soul kind of stuff about whether or not he's good enough to be a poet. Um, he's writing to him about how there's nothing easy about art and how if you are looking for the easy way, you're never going to create anything you're proud of and all and, and like this kind of thing. But since it's so short, it's like too short to be depressing, <laughs> um, which it very much could be if you get too much of this like you have to give up everything within yourself to make good art, capital G, capital A, it can get a little discouraging. Um, but there are moments of humor and levity. I think Ralke knew that he was maybe coming off a little high-handed at some point, so he does lighten it up occasionally. And it's just a really entertaining um, and inspirational read. And anybody who's at all interested in books or reading or writing, um, I think should read it. Or, you know, just like life in general, or creating anything ever. It doesn't have to be words on a page, but any sort of, if you're into anything that involves creativity, um, it's a must read. So that's Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Maria Rilke. Am I saying that right? Rilke? I thought Rilke. it was Rilke, but I could Rilke. That sounds right. Yeah, that yeah. sounds better. What she said. <laughs> <laughs> um, my first pick is Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley, which is just a delight of a book. Um, it The Melville House has, uh, in their like Art of the Novella, has issued a really lovely, I think it's like bright orange copy. Um, so I recommend getting that edition just because it's cute. Um, but this is the story of a woman who is keeping house for her brother, um, who is a poet and goes off on these epic walks to inspire his writing and his poetry and leaves her to like cook and do the dishes. And she's kind of bored. Like she's just bored. Um, and one day a man with a little like caravan, you know, like, um, traveling caravan wagon thing comes by with his horse. Cause this is like, you know, I think early, when does this take place? 
I don't even know. Early 1900s? I feel, yeah, it felt kind of Edwardian to me, even yeah. though it's not English, but no. it, it has that, yeah, like, yeah, that, early. that feel to it. Anyway, okay, so, like, there's probably not dishwashers, like, let's put it that way. Like, technology <laughs> is at a minimum. But, like, even in this world, uh, you know, having a little book wagon is still a little bit quaint. So he pulls up with his book mobile on, on a horse and is like, I am going to sell this caravan to your brother. I think I, I've read his books and I know he loves books and I want to sell it to him. And she's like, absolutely not. Then I will be left <laughs> here forever. And he'll just come wandering back to eat and then leave again with his caravan and I'll never get to do anything. So she's like, you know what? I'm going to buy it from you. And he's like, are you sure? And she's like, absolutely. So she buys the caravan and like goes jaunting off to have an adventure and to sell books. And she's a natural bookseller. And in the meantime, the guy who sold it to her is like, not so sure that he has done the right thing. He's very nervous about her ability to like take care of herself in the big wide world. And so he follows along and there's a whole series of like farcical, really funny adventures. Um, and it's just a really fun read. Like, the main character is so dry and deadpan in her humor and the situations are silly, but also very heartwarming. And it's just like the, it's just a really delightful book. So that is Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley. I think it's like I almost right around 150 pages, but it's a really quick read. I love that book so much. It's so much fun. <laughs> it is. And the, the heroine is just, she's so saucy. I love she it. is. She is. She's great. <laughs> okay. My second pick for you is The Transmigration of Bodies by Yuri Herrera. Uh, Lisa Dillman is the translator. This is new. It just came out this year. Um, I think in, the, in July. Anyway, it's about 115 pages, a little over 100 pages. And it's a mystery crime novel, very noir kind of feeling. Um and it takes place in modern day Mexico, but it feels very much like what happens after the end of Romeo and Juliet, um, like after they're dead kind of a thing. So the setup is that there are two crime families who rule over this town and they both have a dead child um, who is not a child, like five-year-old, but you know, younger, young adult, both of them has a, have a dead young adult and they blame the other family for the death of their child. So they approach the main character, who's our hero, his name is the Redeemer, I don't think you ever find out his real name, um, to kind of broker a piece to arrange for an exchange of bodies to find out who's responsible. Um, and so he does that. He goes out into like the underbelly of the city to arrange for the bodies to be exchanged um, and to find out what's happened. And all of this takes place against the backdrop of a plague. So there's nobody else on the streets. Um, people are dying of this mysterious illness. The government's telling everyone not to worry. Um, but of course, you know, people are worrying because there's, it's like, I think it's mosquito born um, and it's summer. So there's mosquitoes everywhere. Um, so crime noir with a, a, a nice, everyone's dying <laughs> kind of backdrop. Um, the characters are excellent. Like the redeemer is such a great like hard boiled with a heart of gold kind of character, which one I love in noir. All the secondary characters are, are excellent. They all have these like funny, very apropos nicknames. Uh, some of them you get real names, but most of them have names like the Redeemer. Um, and at 115 pages, it's just a really quick uh, kind of whodunit with with a plague, <laughs> as you do. So that's the Transmigration of Bodies by Yuri Herrera. I gotta read okay. that book. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so my second pick for you. Fair warning, it's like it's a really gutting book mm -hmm. that will punch mm -hmm. you in the heart 
repeatedly, <laughs> but it's so good. Um, it is uh, We the Animals by Justin Torres, which it clocks in right around 130 pages. Um, and it's about these three brothers who are like basically half feral um, because <laughs> their parents are working all the time. They're working class. They are just constantly working. Um, and the kids don't have a lot of supervision. And uh, you can imagine they kind of run a little bit wild. Um, and their parents are, their father's Puerto Rican and she's white, so they're mixed race. Um, and so there's some, like, that plays into their family situation. And it's really intense. Um, it's kind of told from the perspective of the youngest brother. And he is really struggling, not only because, you know, like his family life is chaotic, but also he is gay and is trying to come to terms with his own identity and he's having these experiences and he doesn't know how to talk about them and he doesn't feel like he can tell his family about it um, because it's a very like masculine family and he's nervous about what they'll say and what they'll think of him and what they might do. And it's told in this really sort of jagged, um, almost disjointed style sometimes, but the writing is so good. I mean, he really makes the style work from him and it's just... The ending, oh, like I'm thinking about it now and I'm getting chills. It's just a really intense, powerful uh, coming-of-age book um, from a perspective that we don't usually get. Uh, and I just, I really think like everybody needs to read this book if you can if you can bear it. Um, it's, it's really worthwhile. And, and it is so short, so I think that makes it both more powerful and also like doable. Like unlike A Little Life, which is what, you know, 800 pages of heartbreak, this is 130. So that's a little bit easier easier to do, uh, depending on who you are. And, uh, I don't know. I just, I think everybody should read it and it is so short, so it's perfect for this. So that is We the Animals by Justin Torres. All right. Question four. This is from Evelyn. She says, this summer I'm looking for some sci-fi fantasy adventure novels that I can have some fun with before I go back to college as a lit major where I will be reading some heavy classics. I'm going to be reading Ulysses soon. I really need some light stuff. Yeah, you do. Uh, I love when an adventure novel has some romance in it. So if there is a compelling and fun romance in the novel, I would not be opposed. Recently, I read To Say Nothing of the Dog and loved it, and I'm about halfway through the library at Mount Char and really liking it. Um, okay, so I'll just keep going. My first pick for you is The Devourers by Indra Das, which I just finished. Y'all, this book. <laughs> gather your thoughts. Have you read this one yet? I, no, I'm really intrigued by it, though, and I also keep being confused as to whether or not it's a graphic novel, because that cover, like, screams graphic novel to me, but it's not, right? It's a novel? It's not. Yeah, yeah no, okay. it's, just, it's just, it's a novel. Um, it is so brutal, uh, but really fast paced, like, like the library at Mount Char, like how the library at Mount Char is, like, ultra-violent, but you just, like, kind of can't stop reading it. Um, the Devourers is a lot like that. It actually reminded me of The Last Werewolf um, by, you don't know his name. Glenn Duncan. Yes, thank you. Uh, like that really poetic, monster, super gross, gory kind of thing. Uh, the Devourers has that like going on, except it's 17th century India. Um, so and it, it's, it's split. It's a split narrative. So the, for, the book opens modern day uh, in Kolkata in India, and the narrator meets a mysterious stranger who tells him that he's half werewolf shapeshifter, and he wants him to transcribe these uh, the stories of his people that he's collected on scrolls that may or may not be made out of skin. Um, and so the narrator is kind of mesmerized by this idea, you know, very interview with a vampire, like, I don't believe you, but I still kind of want to know what you have to say. So he starts transcribing 
the uh, the stories. And so you follow the, these two, the narrator and this person claiming to be half shapeshifter, and then you go back in time to to the transcriptions of the scrolls. And so the, the transcriptions of the scrolls are about a pack of they call them like they have a lot of names. They're demons, werewolves, shapeshifters. Um, every culture's got a different like term for these beings. They're not humans, basically, um, and they they feed on human beings. So you're following this pack of three shapeshifters, is what I'm going to call them, I guess. Um, as they travel from, they've come down from Europe and are going. They're traveling um, through India now, so they've been together for a long time. And they kill people as they go and eat them in a really graphically violent kind of gross ways. And then they encounter a woman. Um, she's a Muslim. She's, I think, a prostitute. And um, she is, like, kind of just really defiantly not having their BS. Like, she meets one of them and is not scared. She doesn't cower. She kind of doesn't care. You know, like, she's lived this very brutal life on the outskirts of society. And all she sees, the, the, the werewolves um, are from... I think like Norway, France and Greece. So all she sees is just like another white man in her world who's come to bother her. Um, So he becomes fascinated with her and like thinks that he's in love with her. And then from there, the story just devolves like this werewolf shapeshifter thinking that he's in love with this human trigger warning for like pretty much everything, rape and violence. It's, it's super brutal. Um, But it's just, you just can't like, you have to know like what happens to these three werewolf things and how can one of them love a human? And what is this? lady gonna do about it and like ah and is that guy really like half a shapeshifter you don't really know maybe he's crazy maybe everyone in this book is on acid I don't know <laughs> so you're like just can't I, I read it in like a sitting and it's not short wow uh, and so it's blurbed it's like being Neil Gaiman-ish but but I, that is not real like Neil Gaiman is not as hardcore as this book is but it's it's really excellent um so that's The Devourers by Andrew Das Godspeed <laughs> God be with you <laughs> Well, there's a recommendation. Um, my first pick for you is more on the sci-fi side of the spectrum. It is Infomocracy by Malka Older, which just came out this year, and I am obsessed with it. I, spe- I feel like especially during a- an election year, like this book, you need to read this book. So what it's about is uh, it's like, you know, sort of near future um, where voting works completely differently. You vote in uh, what's called the Sentinel, which is a group of 100,000 people um, based on, you know, geography. And uh, you can vote for whatever government you want. Like there's a ton of different government options out there. Some of them are like corporate sponsored. Some of them are clearly more idealistic than others. Some of them are, you know, based on like security. And like, so you can vote basically on whatever issue is important to you. And there's a micro government out there that could potentially be in charge of your sentinel. So when you're walking around town, you could be going in and out of areas that are not governed by the same government as you who lives like just on the other side of town. Um, So I think this concept is fascinating. Um, And sort of running the whole show is this uh, public search engine like think Google but you know times a billion called information and their job is to you know run the elections and to provide information haha uh, to all of the citizens so that they can make the right choices um, and their job is also to fight misinformation so if somebody's like saying things that aren't true like happens all the time in elections uh, it's this you know com- or organization is the right word it's this organization's job to get the right information out there as quickly as possible so that everybody can know what's really going on um, 
and of course, this is not a perfect system. And the characters that you get introduced to are all on different sides of the political spectrum. So Ken is one of the main characters, and he works for a very idealistic party called Policy First. Um, and he's trying to work his way up like the ladder inside his own party and become, you know, a higher placed official. And he really believes in what he's doing. And then there's this guy, Domain, who thinks that, like, it's all ridiculous, it's all bull, it's all stupid and rigged anyway, and, like, we should just, you know, the whole system needs to get burnt to the ground. And then there's Mishima, who is my favorite, who is an operative for information who goes on, like, scary, intense, dangerous, bomb-involving missions and has her own, like, personal tiny jet. Um, she's amazing. And, uh, and she... Her job is to try to make sure that, like, the corporations and different governments are following the rules, that the information is getting out to the right people, and that everything is going smoothly, which, of course, it doesn't. Um, and it is one of those books, like, a lot of people have been comparing it to Snow Crash. Um, it's definitely got that, like, cyberpunk feel to it, except it's sociopunk is how people are describing it, which I kind of love. Um, and it's, like, it's about spreadsheets, and it's about, like, bombs and stabbings and, and you know, races to the... to beat the bad guy. Um, so it's a really smart, cybery, thrillery thing that actually made me feel better about the election, which is a feat. Um, <laughs> like for five minutes, I was like, maybe we're going to be okay after reading this book, which was, you know, that's a five minutes I'm hanging on to. Um, and Malka Older's own personal experience is in disaster relief. Um, and I think it gives her a really interesting perspective uh, that she's writing from. Um, and if you're keeping track, she's Daniel Jose Older's sister. It's just unreal to me that like families spawn these genius writers, more than one per family. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, super different from his books, obviously. Uh, so I just think it's really fun. It's a really fast read, but it's a really thinky read, which I appreciate a lot. Uh, so that is Infomocracy by Malka Older. Okay, my second book is way more lighthearted than my first one, uh, which I think most things would be. Uh, it's Serpentine <laughs> by Cindy Pond. This I, is all... I love her. Hmm? I love Cindy Pond. I know, I know. And this is such a fun um, kind of fast YA fantasy um, based on Chinese folklore. So anyway, okay, so it's a coming of age. The main character's name is Skybright. She turns 16. She's um, poor. She's an orphan. She was found, uh, like, abandoned on the doorstep of a wealthy family. And they take her in um, and kind of install her in their household as the handmaiden and companion to their daughter. Um, so she has done that for 16 years. She's grown up serving this girl um, who she kind of works for, I guess. But they're also, you know, kind of sisters at this point. It's been 16 years. They've spent every day together. Um, so they are also best friends. Um, and so as she turns 16, Skywright starts to notice a few things about herself that are troubling, like at night she turns into a snake, which would be a little troubling. She wakes up and realizes uh, in the middle of the night that like her lower half is just a giant serpent's body and her her tongue is gone and now she has a flicky snake tongue and she can't talk anymore but she can see ghosts and stuff like that and so she at first thinks it's a nightmare then it happens for a second night and she wakes up in the woods um and realizes that it's not a nightmare something very very odd like horrible or horrifying is happening to her so she sets out to kind of try and solve the mystery of who she is where she really came from who her parents were and why she wakes up as a snake, <laughs> as that would be quite confusing, I imagine. And at the same time, her 
companion, the woman, the girl that she works for, she's not a woman, she's a teenager. Um, the girl that she works for, uh, has had her period. And so in this society, that means it's time for her to go get married. So she has to like help her hide it so that, cause she doesn't want to get married yet. So she helps her hide it. And, um, also at the same time, she, there's like a little side romance with, um, a boy who grows up in a monastery down the street from where they live. Um, so there's a lot going on, mythology and demons and ghosts and slight romance, really excellent uh, friendship, uh, coming of age. It's got a little bit of everything, and it's just a lot of fun. So that's Serpentine by Cindy Pond. So side note about that book, we I went to GeekyCon and moderated a couple panels, and Cindy was on one of them. And at one point in the discussion, we were talking about, like, periods versus turning into half of a snake um like which would you prefer and we took a vote yeah. and everybody in the audience picked snake just for the record I, yes i like the way that she parallels like the, yeah. the rich girl gets her period the same night the poor girl wakes up as a snake and i was like with these two side by side right yeah the snake thing doesn't sound so bad it doesn't seem so bad right like i feel like i might rather turn into a snake i don't know it's hard to say but <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you get some like cool powers you can taste stuff with your tongue or like right? smell stuff with your tongue yeah and if especially if it's like for a week the way period is like that doesn't seem too bad to me um but anyway we took a vote at geeky con and and snake tail won so <laughs> um okay my second pick is uh walk on earth a stranger by ray carson which is the first in a series the second book is either out now or out soon um and i really enjoyed this book it is a western but it's not a Western that I have. Well, actually, is it a Western? Okay, let me rewind. It is a frontier story. There we go. So the main character, Lee Westfall, um, is she's grown up happy. She's, uh, she's a teenager. Her parents are both alive. Um, they are a good family. They love each other. They work together. Um, they are, they have like a farmstead. Um, and you know, things are like a little tough, but they, they, they're, they're pretty okay. Um, and also Lee has a secret. Uh, she can sense gold. Like she can literally feel when there's gold near her or around her. Um, and, and so this has helped their family quite a bit, as you might imagine, but they have to be really careful because, you know, it doesn't do to just like walk into town with a bunch of gold. People want to know where you got it. And if you can't, like nobody, nobody knows that she has this power and they would be very upset if they did. Um, and so she has to keep it a secret and they're really careful about how and when they use the gold to sort of pad their family finances. Um, you know, her father will claim that he like, oh, he found some in the stream, you know, when he was, you know, doing his panning for gold and here's what he found. Um, but in any case, uh, then of course, because it's too good to be true in a Hawaii mm-hmm. novel, everything goes to hell. Her parents mm-hmm. die in really terrible circumstances, um, and her uncle comes to take over their home, and he is the biggest sleazebag in the world. And it is really clear that it, she's not going to be safe uh, with him. And he knows her secret. He knows. And he is going to do horrible things uh, to and with her. So she runs away. Um, she is going to flee west to California because this is during the gold rush, and she's like, well, if I go to California where everybody's looking for gold anyway, like nobody will notice that I have this power. Only she's a girl. So she describes herself as a boy as she flees and inserts herself into sort of a wagon train, like Oregon Trail style wagon train. 
Um, and the book is the story of her adventures. Uh, it's, you know, about, there is a side romance. Um, it's about that period in history, but with this magical twist. And Lee's a great character. She's really uh, trying to figure things out on her own terms. And it feels pretty true to that time period. But of course, it's got some nice feminist overtones. Um, and I don't know, I really love the story. I got very sucked into this book. I was like, oh, I'll just pick it up and read it for a little bit. And the next thing I knew, it was like four hours later, and I was almost done. And I was like, oh, I guess I like it. <laughs> Which is always a delightful experience. Um, so yes, the it's the first in a trilogy. The first is Walk on Earth a Stranger by Ray Carson. Oh, it's my turn. Right. Oh, wait, yeah. no, it's time for the sponsor. sponsor. All right. So in the continuing quest to find the best books app, we have a new contender. It is Reco uh, from Indigo, which are the Canadian book people. Um, and it is, I have been playing around with it all morning, and it is pretty slick. So the way it works is that you sign up, um, which is pretty straightforward, and you can not only put in what you are reading and um, keep track of the books in your personal library, which is always nice, but really what it's organized around is helping you find your next great book. And so the way they do this is both to match you up with other people who share your interests. So when you sign up, you like click on some buttons that say like, these are the genres and subgenres and topics I'm interested in. And then they'll suggest people for you to follow, which is a nice feature because, you know, the first thing you do when you get a new app and social network is you're like, how do I find the people? So that's how you find the people. And then they also suggest featured users like, drumroll, Margaret Atwood. <laughs> she's mm. on here and she's super active. Um, she's got a bunch of interesting lists and records recommendations going like three hours ago she recommended true grit which i support yes margaret i would i agree everybody should read true grit um and Rupi Kaur is also on here, which I think is pretty cool. Um, there's a bunch of interesting people, and they are curating, the team that is working on Reco is curating different kinds of lists around themes or seasons or picks. Uh, so if you can't get enough book recommendations in your life, which let's be real, none of us ever can have enough, um, this is a great way to find new ones. Um, and the thing, the other thing that makes it different is that it, there's no algorithms involved. It's all people based. So they're matching you up with other people based on things that you said you were interested in, not that things that it thinks you're going to be interested in. Um, and they're the people who are building the lists are building them because they think they're good books. They're not just, you know, the top five most popular or whatever random books. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a really slick user experience. I like the layout. I like the colors or lack thereof. It's very clean. It's very clean. Um, and it was super easy to sign up, so you should give it a try. Um, it is currently available in the App Store for iOS. Um, an Android version is going to be released later this year. And yeah, it'll let you find new books, find new people to follow, manage your own reading. Um, and you can also see how many people were inspired by the books that you recommended, which is always a fun time. So that is the app Reco, which you can find in the Apple App Store. Okay. Okay, okay. And it's still me. All right, here we go. <laughs> I'm doing all of Welcome the to the Gen Show. Welcome to the Gen Show. Uh, okay, this question is from Molly. And the question is, uh, let's see, I teach 7th and 8th grade English. And we have some great read aloud books for 8th grade, but every two years my colleagues and I end up having the what are we going to read it aloud debate. Basically, I'm looking for good read aloud novels for 7th and 8th grade classes. I usually read at least three times a week for 10 to 15 minutes at a time or more if they're really into it. Uh, here are a few books we've had luck with in the past. Heart of a Champion by Carl 
Stuker. I don't know how mm. to say that. Okay for Now by Gary Schmidt. The Testing by Joelle Charbonneau. And When You Reach Me by Rebecca Stead. I don't have many deal breakers when it comes to choosing books, except I really try not to pick anything that will make me cry. Just for the record, <laughs> like, you have some tear jerkers on this list. I know. <laughs> I was like, what? But, but so Molly says, I always lose it when we finish Heart of a Champion, and I've resigned myself to that, but I absolutely cannot read Wonder again because I can't get past the part where, mm, spoiler. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so any suggestions would be greatly appreciated. <laughs> um, I'm just going to keep talking. Why not? Okay. All right. So my first pick for you is Every Day by David Levithan, which I thought would be a good read aloud for a couple of reasons including that it's divided up into almost like diary entries. So it seems to me, I mean, I haven't clocked myself reading one of those aloud, but it seems like that's a good structure for a read aloud. Um, And the story behind this is so great. It's about a character named A who wakes up every morning in the body of a different person. A is like a free-floating soul who takes over the body of somebody else of their same age and general geographic location for a day. Um, A does not ever have their own body. A is not even a really specific gender. Um, It just kind of depends what body they are in at any given moment. Um, But A retains their own consciousness and they've been, you know, they can, this is all of the they've known for as long as they remember and so they've tried really hard to not disrupt the lives of the people they end up in they have access to all of the person's memories and know like what it is that they're doing you know on any given day um so that they try to kind of like make sure not to do anything too crazy and mess up their lives too much um which is you know its own special kind of hard um and it starts with a who is in uh, their teens i can't remember if it's like 13 or 14 And they wake up in the body of a guy named Justin and meet Justin's girlfriend, Rhiannon. And Justin is kind of not the greatest boyfriend. So A is like, huh, I don't know. Am I do like I continue to be a jerk to this girl? Like, how does this work? Um, And gets attached to Rhiannon. And in the course of the story, you know, like, how do you become attached to a person when you don't know who you're going to wake up as the next morning, like you don't know who, what gender, what sexuality, what type of person you're going to be. Um, and it's a really interesting, you know, way to think about identity and love and like personhood. Uh, and of course, there's a bad guy. There's an evil soul hopper person trying to make contact with A um, and lure them to the dark side. And then on top of it, A is still trying to like figure out like how to be how to what to do about this everyday waking up as a different person. Um, so I think that would be a really interesting read. It's got all different kinds of characters because of course A is jumping around, um, but it's all held together by this one perspective. So that is Every Day by David Levithan. Okay, my first pick for you, I picked because it is a fairy tale, and I thought that would be kind of like a fun thing to read out loud. It's very Neil Gaiman-ish. It's Summer and Bird by Catherine Catmull. Um, so kind of two things are going on here. Uh, and in one world, a young fellow falls in love with the Swan Queen, and he steals her skin, essentially like her swan robe, um, that allows her to shapeshift. And so the queen falls in love with him because he now has part of her soul, essentially. Um, and so she goes off with him uh, and abandons her kingdom, and a pretender sets up inside this kingdom um, and starts and the, to like rule the birds and is not, you know a great regent. So that's happening in this world. This is a fantasy world. And then in kind of the real world, these two sisters, Summer and Bird, wake up one 
day to find out that their parents have disappeared. Um, They go off into the woods around their house to search for them. And in their traveling through the woods, they enter a fantastical world that they call the Down, um, which is full of talking birds and an evil regent that seems to be out to kind of hurt them. So the girls get separated. And you're following both of them as they go on this quest to find and save their parents. And while they're doing that, discover, pick up clues and discover what's happened to this kingdom of the birds. Um, it's it's a fairy tale, but it's it's like dark. I say but it's dark as if all fairy tales aren't dark. Most fairy tales are dark. But yeah, it's dark, but not in a way that would be like inappropriate to read to um middle schoolers or anything like that but it can be you know it's like it's kind of edgy creepy in in like the same way that the girl who circumnavigated fairyland in a ship of her own making has like hard concepts you know that are packaged in such a way that kids can kind of consider them from a safe distance so that's kind of what's going on here uh wrapped up in this mystery fantasy fairy tale what's happened to the swan queen and where are summer and bird's parents and you're also following the two of them as they come of age um in a very narnia sort of way like the influences that children have when they're under stress can really dictate what kind of people they become. Um, so there's a lot of like lessons with a capital L going on here, but not in like a, a way that makes it boring or uncomfortable to read. So yeah, that's Summer and Bird by Catherine Cavill. It's really, it's just like beautiful and lovely and I love it. Okay. Um, my second pick, I don't know, it might be a little too edgy, but I was looking at the other books you mentioned and like some of them have really intense content. So I feel like this is not any more dramatic than anything you mentioned. Um, And the book is Falling Into Place by Amy Zhang. And uh, it comes with some warnings. Uh, It frankly discusses suicide. um, And there's a lot about bullying in it. So this is about a girl named Liz Emerson who tries to die. She runs her car off a bridge. Uh, She's a teenager. She's in high school. And uh, she doesn't, she ends up in the hospital. So the book is about her in the hospital and you're kind of waiting to find out, like, is she going to make it? Is she not going to make it? Um, And in the meantime, why did she do this? Because she's kind of the queen of the school. Like she has what looks like everything. Um, She's sporty and athletic and she's pretty and she's got friends and you know, she's, she doesn't seem to have the problems that would lead her to do something like this. And so uh, the book is sort of piecing together who Liz is, like what, you know, why she is the way she is, and, um, and why she would do something like this. And it's, there's like sort of a twist when you find out who is narrating the book, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, And I think it's a really, I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated, but in the way that I, Amy Zhang, who wrote it, is herself very young. Um, I believe she started writing this in high school. And so I think it gives a really interesting look onto the sort of brain, what am I, wanna, what am I trying to say? Like how, what it's like to be inside of a high school situation in which bullying is involved and like the choices that you make, like why do you make terrible choices about these things? Um, what's it like to be on either end of them? And uh, I think it, you know, asks some intense questions about bullying in a high school that certainly 
would be worthwhile to consider if you are a student in junior high and high school and have to deal with this stuff. Um, I don't think it cuts any slack, but I do think it tries to look at all of the different angles, which is interesting. Um, obviously, you'll want to read it first and to make sure it's appropriate for your students. But like I said, like if you're, you know, if you're reading okay for now, like I feel like this is not too far of a jump. Um, I don't know. I could be wrong, but I thought I'd put it out there uh, because I do think it is a worthwhile read, especially if you are in situations like these characters are in. So that is Falling Into Place by Amy Zhang. Okay, my second pick for you is Blackbird Fly by Erin and Trada Kelly. And this is about a 12-year-old girl named Apple. Um, she moved to Louisiana with her mother from the Philippines when she was four years old um, and has grown up essentially as an American since you know, she was, she only spent her first four years of life in the Philippines. Um, and she started to, you know, she's going into middle school and she's got, you know, middle school is just the worst. And she's got these like really, um, awkward interactions with her classmates where she's starting to realize that her mother is strange, like to her quote unquote strange. Her mom cooks food that the other kids don't eat. She doesn't speak perfect English. Um, she's kind of a penny pincher. Um, and she kind of chastises Apple. Apple is the main character. Um, for wanting to be like too American. And then in, when she goes to school, Apple experiences some racism. Um, the boys in her class put her in what's called the dog log, which is like a list of the most unattractive girls in the school. They ask her if she eats, if her, if her mother is cooking her dogs, like actual dogs, uh, which is something that I heard growing up uh, Filipino also. Um, and it's just like the casual racism that young kids can can like exhibit when they don't know any better, you know, like they're just kind of aping what they're, they've heard their parents say. Um, and so she's having a tough time. Her friends turn on her, but then she meets some new kids. She starts to learn how to play the guitar, uh, which her mother, she has to do in secret. Her mother doesn't want her to play the guitar because she's got some bad memories about it um, from her own childhood and from her relationship with her father, who's not there anymore. Um, so it's about like a little girl discovering that she can be proud of her family and her culture and herself. She finds friends who accept her and celebrate her for who she is. She discovers a love of music. It's just really like heartwarming and nice. And I think uh, if I had read this in middle school, it would have meant, I think, a lot to me. Because I, I went, I experienced a lot of the same stuff that Apple goes through. But I think it's also important that kids who don't experience racism and who don't ever feel like cultural outsiders um, hear stories about what that's like, uh, you know, to, you know, teach them some empathy, I guess, especially if they're not hearing that. Um, at home, which a lot of kids maybe aren't. Um, so it's entertaining and funny. Apple's a really, really cute main character, but it's also kind of like important, uh, in my opinion. So that's Blackbird Fly by Aaron and Trada Kelly. And that is our show. Ta-da! Ta-da! Jazz hands. So please go rate us on iTunes. Leave us a review. It helps other people find the show easier. You can find us on social media. I'm at I'm Amanda Nelson. Jen is at Jen IRL with two N's. And thank you to our sponsors, Furious Rush by SC Stevens and the Reco app. Go check that out. We will talk to you all next week. <laughs>